0: Hey, good morning. I wanted to give you a quick Bill update. I had an email from him today, or this morning. Really, it was two in the morning, but whatever time his time. (laughs) Um, They're in Burgos. He says, uh, there are many opportunities for worship at the cathedral. The Gothic cathedral here is a World Heritage site. And this afternoon, they go to another monastery that has been here since the seventh century. He said, it's been extraordinarily hot without any air conditioning. And today is the first day that they've been in an air-conditioned hotel room where they can have it on full blast. But he says it makes very little difference. (laughs) Tomorrow they head for Lugo and stop at Leon. And then they're on the way to Santiago and return to Houston in early August. So there's our bill update. And of course. As always, you can follow along as he writes the blog on um, his pilgrimage. It's on the website. He's posting it. Yes, ma'am. I'm sorry. But Crystal just wrote that she and Tom are watching today. Oh, hi, Crystal and Tom. Hello. Thanks for saying that. Fantastic. Okay, we'll officially start. If there are anybody who are visiting today, welcome. You can show your hand if you want to. Thanks for being here. Yeah, we don't make you dance or anything, but we're glad you're here. Oh, okay, come on. <laughs> um, yeah. So we'll start the way that we always do, no matter who you are or where you are on your spiritual journey. Yeah. Whether you come every Sunday or you're here for the first time, listening live on the computer, hi again. Um, in some other way I can't imagine. I'm glad you're here, and thanks for being here with me on a July day. I am taking on some big topics, the soul. This week I'm taking on love, and I'm hoping to distill it to some sort of takeaway ideas that we can both put into practice and contemplate. Maybe I'll get to evil someday. (laughs) That's a tough one. I'm going to start with these three words and just kind of holding these three things in your mind together. Love, gravity, and sacred mystery. What do these three have in common? Well, for starters, they're all very difficult to understand, but they're among us all the time. All three are less facts or things than they are felt or resonant. What if we acted as if love were as much a fact as gravity? When you look at the two side by side, there are actually a lot of similarities. Let's start with love. I think sometimes love gets a bad rap. It's super romantic, it's idealistic, it's kind of mushy. We throw it around a lot. I love chocolate, I love bacon, I love butterflies. We call on it to fix our greatest societal woes, All you need is love, right? (laughs) Sometimes love is too edgeless, too wide, and so it's rendered abstract in this way. I say I love you all the time, and I most often mean it. I really do love Josh. I really do love baseball. I love them very differently, but I love them both nonetheless. The dictionary definition is a deep feeling of affection desire, or attraction. But what is the quality of the love that can indeed change the world, that can call us out of anger into action, and ultimately into what Buddhist teacher Thich Nhat Hanh calls interbeing? He describes it this way. If you are a poet, you will see clearly that there is a cloud floating in this sheet of paper. Without a cloud, there will be no rain, without rain, the trees cannot grow. Without trees, we cannot make paper. The cloud is essential for the paper to exist. If the cloud is not here, the sheet of paper cannot be here either. So we can say that the cloud and the paper enter our. So I want to talk about love in a very specific way, a fierce kind of love that demands our attention and intention. It is an action, not something to be contained, but a force that acts on us and through us. This kind of love, I think, is the hardest, easiest thing because the being human part gets in our way. Let's turn to the true wisdom teachers, kiddos. I love some of these quotes from children about love. This one says, love will find you, even if you are trying to hide from it. I've been trying to hide from it, since I was five, but the girls keep finding me. (laughs) Forgive the typo, I just noticed it. This one says, when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. It just feels safe in their mouth. This one says, love is when you tell a guy you love his shirt and then he wears it every day. This is how the way to the heart and this one you really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it but if you mean it say it all the time people forget and this one little truth about baseball love is the most important thing in the world but baseball is pretty great too (laughs) I think that's a smart kid (laughs) and this is my favorite I'll read it in case some of you cannot Author and lecturer Leo Buscaglia once talked about a contest he was asked to judge. The purpose was to find the most loving child. The winner was a four-year-old whose next-door neighbor was an elderly gentleman who had recently lost his wife. Upon seeing the man cry, the little boy went into the old gentleman's yard, climbed onto his lap, and just sat there. When his mother asked what he had said to the neighbor, the little boy said, Nothing. I just helped him cry. So sweet. (laughs) Kids are great teachers. So love is a shirt, love is a baseball, love is repetitive, and you can't hide from it. Sometimes love is saying nothing at all. If only we could keep it that simple. (laughs) But somehow our adult language gets in the way, our adult experiences get in our way, so I'm going to plod on with my adult language and try to teach us about how to love. Maybe at some point, it'll stick, and our hearts will open a size or two. <laughs> Even though many of us have been fortunate enough to experience love on some level, it remains the most, one of the most difficult emotions to understand. Just because we don't fully understand it, however, its meaning is not diminished. It may be just the most compelling mystery of the mind that science will never quite be able to tackle, and yet, we accept it as a truth. In this sense, it's a lot like gravity." This slide makes a ton of sense to everyone, right? It's gravity. It's the, 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 the formula for gravity. You get it now. <laughs> All I can really make sense of is that the moon moves around the sun, They both move, uh, um, the move, move, I'm sorry, the moon moves, I can't even make sense of it. The moon moves around the earth, both move around the sun, and they move in opposite directions. I'm no clearer to understanding the why or the how of gravity. I've heard it said gravity is not a fact, but a love story. It is insanely hard to understand, but remember that it essentially is a principle of attraction, just like love. There are like 35 people on the entire planet who actually have some grasp of how gravity works, and yet it operates on everything. Physicists do not fully understand why, only that it does. It abides by one of Newton's four universal laws and states, gravity is a force that attracts a body toward any other physical body having mass. It keeps the universe in motion and in tension. It's what gives the tree's height, and it's what keeps us tethered to the ground. It operates between objects. So other than equations and diagrams, what is the real distinction between love and gravity? What if we operated as if love were also a universal law? We have some idea of Einstein's theory of relativity, E equals mc squared. Remember that Einstein was improving upon Newton's theory. It is essentially the theory of everything, the one that explains movement and expansion of the universe. During his lifetime, Einstein evidently wrote a ton of letters and said to his stepdaughter, Margot, I trust you will make these known when you think the time is right. In 1980, after his death, 1,400 of his letters were released to the public, and one evidently meant for his youngest daughter, Liesl, He disclosed that while he had to couch relativity in scientific language, what he was actually talking about was love. I'd like to read part of his letter. It's really quite beautiful. It's a little lengthy, but I think you'll find it enriching. When I proposed the theory of relativity, very few understood me. And what I will reveal now to transmit to mankind will also collide with the misunderstanding and prejudice in the world. I ask you to guard these letters as long as necessary, years, decades, until society is advanced enough to accept what I will explain. There is an extremely powerful force, so far, that science has not found a formal explanation to. It is a force that includes and governs all others, and is even behind any phenomenon operating in the universe, and has not yet been identified by us. This universal force is love. When scientists look for a unified theory of the universe, they forgot the most powerful unseen force. Love is light. That enlightens those who give and receive it. Love is gravity. This is Einstein. Because it makes some people feel attracted to others. Love is powerful. Because it multiplies the best we have and allows humanity not to be extinguished in their blind selfishness. Love unfolds and reveals. For love, we live and die. Love is God, and God is love. This force explains everything and gives meaning to life. This is the variable that we have ignored for too long, maybe because we are afraid of love, because it is the only energy in the universe that man has not learned to drive at will. To give visibility to love, I made a simple substitution in my most famous equation. If instead of E equals MC squared, we accept that the energy to heal the world can be obtained through love multiplied by the speed of light squared, E equals MC squared. We might then say equals LC squared. (laughs) We arrive at the conclusion that love is the most powerful force there is because it has no limits after the failure of humanity in the use and control of the other forces of the universe that have turned against us, it is urgent that we nourish ourselves with this kind of energy. If we want our species to survive, if we are to find meaning in life, if we want to save the world and every sentient being that inhabits it, love is the one and only answer. Perhaps we are not yet ready to make a bomb of love, a device powerful enough to entirely destroy the hate, selfishness, and greed that devastate the planet. However, each individual carries within them a small but powerful generator of love whose energy is waiting to be released. When we learn to give and receive this universal energy, dear Liesel, we will have affirmed that love conquers all, is able to transcend everything and anything because love is the quintessence of life. I deeply regret not having been able to express what is in my heart, which has quietly beaten for you all my life. Maybe it's too late to apologize, but as time is relative, I need to tell you that I love you, and thanks to you, I have reached this ultimate answer, your father, Albert Einstein." I thought that was amazing. Mm -hmm. There's a thought that if we repeat something enough times, I think that magic number is seven that it will eventually stick. So we, we know we need a daily spiritual practice, right? That's been repeated 7,000 times. <laughs> um, that's right. So I'll say again that the universe operates in part on the principle of communion, which means that all things operate in relation to one another. All things are necessary to keep the universe in motion, and this is true on every level of existence. The Jewish mystics took this notion and challenged humans to operate on the principle of love and communion, calling it tikkun olam, or world repair. The more we act in a way that bends towards justice and compassion, the more we experience the union with all that is, or as Einstein might say, with the most powerful force there is, thus contributing to the healing the heart of the world. I also love in part of this letter he wrote about his ideas on God, seen to the left of the slide. I have repeatedly said that in my opinion, the idea of a personal God is a childish one. You may call me agnostic, but I do not share the crusading spirit to the professional atheist whose fervor is mostly due to a painful act of liberation from the fetters of religious indoctrination received in youth. I prefer an attitude of humility corresponding to the weakness of our intellectual understanding of nature and our own being. To me, this sounds an awful lot like respect for sacred mystery. A saying attributed to the Buddha is, the way is not in the sky, the way is in the heart. It's not out there somewhere that love is found, but right here, within. It must extend outside of us to be experienced. We are taught to love our enemies, to turn the other cheek, love all as if it were pieces of ourselves. But contrary to what we might think, love is not passive or rolling over and taking it. It is active and it's activating. It is, in a word, our greatest weapon, the only thing that really ever has transformed the world. It is in all things, the beautiful, the sacred, the unholy, the destroyed and the broken, the creative and the whole. This is the connection between love, gravity, and sacred mystery. They are hard to understand, but widely felt as governing forces. I might actually reframe and say that sacred mystery is the container for both love and gravity. The truest capital T truths are those which are universal. Like gravity, love is one of them. It is because of it that I've ever been able to hold fear at bay and cross the threshold of curiosity and acceptance. Wherever relationship exists, evolution of thought, belief, and action also is possible. Relationships turn us into allies, into advocates and activists. I'm beginning to sound like it's easy. Just love each other, that's all you have to do. If you lived with me, you'd know that I don't always do it well. (laughs) Right, Josh? Um, The idea is easy. Being it is different and difficult. We don't have to think that much about gravity. It just operates. It's like our heart beating. It just does. We don't have to do anything to make our heart beat. But we do have to consider how we love. We have an incredible example of what it looks like to be love in the Buddha's teaching and, of course, also in Jesus' teaching. Both contain elements of what Buddhism refers to as right speech and right action, upholding the view that we all are one, that we must both behave towards someone with love as well as generate a relationship that allows it to flow between us and everything, just like gravity. Loving this way fiercely, openly, and with integrity, is hard. In some attempt to answer this question of how shall we love, here are a few ideas that I hope will help us shape that way that we love. If we participate in this gravitational pull between all things in order to keep harmony with laws of motion and mystery, I think living in love is that possible as well. So, idea number one. This is where you can take notes, just kidding. Fierce love does not mean approval. I once heard the Dharma teacher and psychologist, Tara Brock tell a story of a monk who didn't know what his compassion calling was in the world. So he went to a high-security prison, and he gathered all of the folders of the worst offending criminals, and he meditated over them every day, and he prayed over them every day. He didn't know them, he didn't approve of the murders or the rapes or pedophilia that they had committed. He didn't say, I love you, therefore what you did is okay. He said, I love you anyway. He, didn't, he dared to see himself in them, and vice versa. There are several people in my life that I have to put in file folders, and I have to, behind closed eyelids, say, I love you anyway. On certain days, it's through gritted teeth, it's hard. For those who commit acts of injustice, I'll put them in my stack of manila file folders, place them on my desk, and put my hand over their faces, and say, I love you anyway. Considering that I, too, am imperfect, I should probably put myself in those file folders, (laughs) right? To echo the wise words of Thich Nhat Hanh from his poem, Call Me By My True Name, I am the 12-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean, after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving." He wrote that in response to um, a rape that occurred on a boat coming from Vietnam and was able to have compassion for all parts of that story. To see the oppressed and oppressor through a lens of compassion, to be willing to see suffering in both is an act of fierce love, without approving of the harm done. Idea number two, this is Kali. Sometimes fierce love is fierce, which is not the same thing as cruel. Kali is the Hindu goddess of time pictured behind me. She's the goddess of time, creation, destruction, and power. She is also worshipped as the Divine Mother in Hinduism. She is fierce. She's holding a head in her hand. <laughs> She is ultimate love and also feminine energy. The word Kali shares meaning with the fullness of time. As I understand it, the fullness of time is both destructive and creative. It keeps chaos and order in balance. Love, too, has the power to destroy systems of injustice and create equity. It, too, is destructive and creative. Recently, during a kind of hard time in my life, I felt a bit untethered, a bit removed from the people I love, and I felt like a planet with no sun and nothing to orbit around. But before I realized this importance of this tear and the geometry of my life and the geometry of my individuation, I was suffering. I did not know how to love and let go at the same time. I didn't know how to create boundaries and still love at the same time. I didn't know that those two things could exist together. Boundaries felt mean. They felt incongruous with love. But they are also exactly what I needed to keep myself in the good place, to be able to love myself and others. One of my best friends acted as my colleague. She said, Hall, in her sweet Carolina accent, sometimes love is fierce. <laughs> In keeping with such wisdom, if I were to define my role as mother, it is not only to help shepherd my kids into the fullness of their beings, but it's also to create structures and safe boundaries within which they can operate. This means I have rules. I say no, a lot. We have a lot of emotions in our house. But within that, there's a lot of creative energy for kids to explore. They have a safe container to explore those things. When the ship goes astray, it is my job and Josh's job to speak firmly and lovingly, to show up with fierce love. I say often, I love you, but what you did is not okay. One of my sons right now is fascinated by money, and if we leave any money laying around, it disappears. And he thinks everything is his, so we left some money on our dresser one day, and he took it which, of course, makes my imagination run wild about his future possibilities. (laughs) Where will this kid land? (laughs) Yes. Uh, We had to hold him close, but we also had to be clear that he needed to work to restore trust with us. We had to be fierce and loving. I have begun to think that there are two sometimes competing forms of this kind of fierce love, toward self and toward others. Kindness towards self can be an act of fierce love. Sometimes this means making a difficult decision because you need to fiercely protect the little girl or boy inside of you. There are times when our patterns of behavior no longer work or when the unspoken rules, those pantyhose rules that I talked about last week, they don't work for us. They aren't mutually beneficial. When you draw a firm but loving line for a boundary pusher that they cannot cross, I guarantee they'll be mad at first, but it won't, and it won't feel kind. I also guarantee that that boundary will help both people feel safe, that both people will know where they stand. I can slip between a Texas twang, proper English and Spanglish in the space of a single sentence, but no one has ever said to me, you don't sound white when you talk like that. Many times I've heard both students and grown folks say, your husband doesn't sound black as if there is only one way for a black person to speak. A kindness toward myself, my husband, and ultimately to the sayer, could be, what do you mean when you say that? Or you might not mean it this way, but when you say that, it sounds like you have a fixed idea of the way a black person should talk. This is right speech. This is what the Buddha called right speech. It's a tenet of the Eightfold Path and described as abstaining from lying, from divisive speech, from abusive speech, and idle chatter. It's kind of a meta communication that most likely is awkward. It's going to make both people feel a little bit awkward. But my hope is responding kindly and compassionately to something like that opens a space between two people where conversation can occur, where someone can say, I'm not really down with what you're saying, But, okay, I'm going to ask some questions, and maybe we can arrive at some mutual understanding. Maybe we can understand each other. You can understand me, and I can understand you. And then maybe we can shift toward each other, as opposed to away. Bill calls this emotional judo. I feel this way, you feel this way, right? This kind of back and forth of emotional judo. Buddhist writer Melanie Harris wrote that fierce compassion is a deep love Willing to confront a person on his or her own behalf. An active form of compassion that insists on unconditional love and wisdom as the foundations from which any action, including corrective action, takes place. It's being willing to see the goodness in all beings and hold others accountable to their best self so that they might act in accordance with interbeing. Often, Kali is pictured standing on Shiva as she is here. Shiva's her consort or her mate. He is blissful and detached, represents pure, formless awareness, while she, with her tongue lolling, her eight arms, her hair is wild, represents form, eternally contained in pure awareness. She is fierce. It is also said that she loves Shiva for eternity. She loves him fiercely. Idea number three, fierce love sometimes erupts from anger. I would wager that many of us at some wedding or another have heard a version of 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, love is kind, it is not irritable or resentful. Yes, we've heard this at a wedding. (laughs) While I totally sloppy grinned and said I do to all of these things at my own wedding, I failed at the love is not irritable part and got mad at Josh the very next day. (laughs) I love Josh more than anyone on the planet. You know that, I hope. (laughs) Um, But I was irritated. I don't remember what it was about. Maybe he forgot to feed the dogs. Maybe he left his underwear on the floor. I, I don't know. But I just remember thinking Paul was wrong. He was wrong about love not being angry or irritable. Years later, when we had three kids within 22 months of each other, I was angry and irritable often. (laughs) Those are some hard days. I just want to say thank you, Brooke, for sitting with me during many of those days. More likely, I felt alone, exhausted, overwhelmed, and totally not enough to provide for the needs of these three little people. But it expressed itself as anger or irritation, I didn't harm anyone, I hope. But being a mom has taught me how closely tethered fear and anger are. You're so fearful of losing someone that sometimes that turns to anger. I am, like many of you in here, a mama bear. Don't mess with my kids. They can push all of my buttons, and my greatest fear is not being able to keep them safe. The one time I spanked my youngest, Evan, was when I saw him tip a carton of toxic like cleaner up toward his mouth. It had been used to clean the outside of our house and was left on the porch. And I, my words could not get out fast enough, so I just reached over, popped his bottom, and took it away. Of course he cried. <laughs> I have never, ever felt love so holy that I might fly apart as I do with my kids. I feel anger often, but I have never stopped loving them. Not ever. I suppose what matters is what I do with that anger, how I act on it. I think it was from Bill that I first heard, love and anger are not opposites, but along a spectrum of passionate emotions you can feel about a single person. Anyone who's been in a relationship knows that. (laughs) If that is true, when my kids look back on their lives, then they will know that I have loved them. So, it's actually love and apathy that are opposites. Apathy is the lack of care or passion. As a parent, I find myself needing to constantly redefine boundaries while not losing sight of the enormity of love I have for my kids in my heart. Have I regressed to feeling two years old? Yes. Have I cried and yelled and at one time threw a toy truck down the stairs? Yes, I have done that. Have I had to say daily, forgive me if I hurt you with my anger? Yes. A friend told me that whenever her kids are being insufferable pains and then you know what, she closes her eyes, holds up a finger and says, hold on, I'm just reminding myself how much I love you. (laughs) I need to put that in my pocket and keep it there to remind myself to love even when it's hard. In this way, daily acts of love and compassion feel fierce. Motherhood feels like a spiritual practice. If I did not love my brown-skinned brothers and sisters, if I did not fiercely love my brown-skinned husband and sons, I would not feel angry about systems and ignorant behaviors that continue to harm their psyches and bodies, systems kept in place by my white-skinned brothers and sisters, who I also love. If I did not feel angry, I would not feel compelled to participate in restoring justice, in acts driven by fierce compassion. Poet and playwright Claudia Rankine said it this way, how can we talk about our different experiences, make space for our different perspectives, and stay in this car together? First Corinthians goes on to say, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things all things, endures all things. I think the important words here are all things. Love is big enough to hold all things, including fierceness and anger, discomfort and truth. It will help us direct into a fuller and truer expression of ourselves if we allow it. A helpful question might be, what are you angry about that really might cover up a longing for more connection, for more harmony? And what can you pour love into and reveal that hidden unity in all things? The fourth and final idea. Fierce love incorporates remembrance and grief, even when it's hard. Alice Walker, the author of the famed book-turned-movie The Color Purple. Anyone read it? It's been a long time since I've read it. She wrote a piece for a Buddhist audience about remembrance as an act of love and healing. She opened by telling the story of a young man enslaved named George Slaughter. He was the son of a white male slave owner by a black female slave. His own father, as part of a mob, shot and killed him for the crime of riding a horse that was deemed too fine for him. While the story is harrowing, the fear of dying at the hands of whites is not unfamiliar to many black Americans. Walker pleads, what do we do with that shock? What do we do with the anger, the rage? What do we do with the pain? We must remember, she concludes, the grief of our ancestors, that deep grief is impossible without love. Deep grief makes the heart bigger, And bigger just trying to hold on to it. To engage this work of healing the ancestors, she says, we must seek to understand them. Ancestors like George Slaughter, ancestors like his father. It is not in heaven or hell that the ancestors are healed. They can only be healed inside of us, between us, through remembrance and acts of love. This is indeed a fierce act. Gravity love, remembrance, they keep us tethered to one another over vast periods of time and over great distances. This triumvirate love, gravity, and sacred mystery are embedded in one another as well as autonomous or individual. Communion is a principle of the universe formation of sacred mystery. Gravity is a law of nature. Can love become the law of humanity? Who knows? Jacob, a character in the book Here I Am, by Jonathan Safran Foer, I do rec- recommend this book. It's a work of fiction, and I, he's, he's a great author. He wrote Everything is Illuminated, and um, I can't ever get the title right, but the one about the boy who lost his father on 9-11 that turned into a movie. I'll find it. <laughs> anyway, Jacob wrestles with his Jewish identity to this particular in-betweenness of his m- midlife, he's going through a divorce, he has three sons, who he loves so overwhelmingly it couldn't fit into his body. In Hebrew scriptures, Jacob means heel grabber, was renamed Israel, which in turn means wrestles with God. I could interchange that with wrestles with love. Foer writes, only one thing can keep something close over time, holding it there, grappling with it wrestling it to the ground as Jacob did with the angel, refusing to let go. What we don't wrestle, we let go of. Love isn't the absence of struggle. Love is the struggle. Fierce love is about embracing this struggle, participating in it, and acting in a way that we might transform it. Haley, the three-year-old little girl who lives with us, she's Selah's daughter, Said to, said to me not long ago, Holly, I need to go to the doctor because I am so, so sick. Oh, I'm so sorry, sweetie, I said. Where does it hurt? My heart. It hurts because it is so, so broken. You know? <laughs> so to tend to the brokenhearted, to tend to the heart, to the hurt in the heart of the world, we need to allow this gravitational pull of fierce love to take hold of us. We need to become, as Buddhist scholar and activist Joanna Macy puts it, Shambhala warriors, intolerant of intolerance and injustice, but leading oppression into the light with a firm but loving hand. Mr. Rogers once said, love or lack of it is at the root of all relationships. The now adults in my generation are so lucky to have grown up with Mr. Rogers as our sort of guiding voice. Yeah. A friend recently sent me this poem, and I'd like to close with it. If Prayer Would Do It by Stephen Levine. If prayer would do it, I would pray. If reading esteemed thinkers would do it, I'd be halfway through the patriarchs. If discourse would do it, I'd be sitting with his holiness every moment he was free. If contemplation would do it, I'd have translated the periodic table to hermit poems, converting matter to spirit. If even fighting would do it, I'd be a black belt. If anything other than love could do it, I have done it already, and I've left the hardest, easiest thing for last. So next week, I'll be in conversation with Dr. Cleve Tinsley. He is the co-director Project Curate and a friend. He's, he's an amazing individual. He's a fierce advocate for racial justice, among many other things. So I hope you'll join us. And until then, have a great week. Remember, wherever you go, you carry precious cargo. So watch your step. OK, thank you guys so much. See you next week.